0: As has already been mentioned, what a great blessing it is to be able to come together today, this first day of the week, the first Sunday of the month of October, and we're delighted that God has so richly showered upon us the blessing of health, the blessing of goodness and weather for for this beautiful day, and allowed us with smiling faces to assemble to offer our worship to the God of heaven. He has loved us so much, and He wants us to, of course, respond in great faith to Him so that we can enjoy all the ceaseless ages of great wonders in heaven above, as we've just sang just a few minutes ago. You may have noticed for the lesson today, we're going to give some thought to the conscience. It may well be that as you and I give thought to the Word of God, we might begin by reminding ourselves the Bible actually has some interesting things to share and to say about the conscience. As we begin that, this introductory slide is really just that. Because the conscience, in many ways is a very interesting subject. Quite amazingly, those who do not believe in the Bible, those who would subscribe to general evolution, for example, they have a great problem with where the conscience ever came from. How did it come about if you don't subscribe it by way of consideration to the creation of God? How did in the distant past, if you want to think about evolution, did the conscience somehow evolve? It didn't evolve in animals, It did evolve in us, apparently. There's no good reason for that. And there's no good way of thinking about it in that way. But yet, the Word of God showers upon us the thought that it is, of course, the matter of God's creation. On that slide, you'll notice that the conscience, of course, has a great thing to say about our behavior, about our reaction to behavior. Have you ever heard someone say, "'Let your conscience be your guide.'" Now, there's some things about that one needs to seriously consider. Is that a safe piece of advice? If it's not, then what might well need to be added? Let's delve, delve into a study of that today by doing this. We're going to use a few Bible passages, and so I hope that you have your Bible available and handy. And as we look at some things the Word of God has to say about the conscience, we'll then refer to them, but let's begin by way of a definition. I've tried to put together a few thoughts that might allow us, at least in a biblically consistent way, to describe what we recognize as the conscience. It all starts this way first, without doubt. You may have noted it in the text read just a minute ago. As Brother Stan read from Acts 23 verse 1, you may notice Paul there referred to his conscience. If the inspired apostle, by way of a text like that one, could refer to the conscience, certainly the Holy Spirit guided him to make reference to it that way. I would be quick to say, have you ever been in a situation in your life when maybe you behaved in a way, maybe you said something and your conscience began to bother you? Were you ever a time in high school, maybe some friends doing something, they encouraged you and you participated only to find later that your conscience bothered you? Something about that didn't sit well with your perspective on things. Maybe there have been other times in life you too have recognized and maybe your children have shared with you some thoughts that their conscience was bothering them about something. You and I then recognize, I think in general, what we mean by the phraseology the conscience. But isn't it also true there are people who could take a gun and in cold-blooded murder kill somebody and never lose a bit of sleep out of it. Their conscience wouldn't bother them. They would have seemingly no remorse. They would have no ill reflections upon what they chose to do or the aftermath of it. Clearly something different about that scenario. Conscience bothered somebody, didn't bother that person. On the slide, I've asked you to step through some of that with me. We're going to try to do justice for the next few moments. What's different about that person's motivation? What's different about that person's perspective that would be so distant and different to you and me? It might well be about the middle of that slide. I could point out to you the Bible actually makes direct reference to the conscience at least 32 times. And I find it very interesting, all 32 of them in the New Testament, every one of them. Now, doesn't that highlight for us maybe this truth? As one switches from the Old Testament into the New, you and I have often noted that God desired, in fact, He asked that those Old Testament individuals, they have the proper appreciation and they have the proper understanding with respect to their obedience, But when we come to the New Testament, that idea must take center stage. For the Lord Jesus Christ rules in our hearts, and that's bound to dictate and determine the features consistent with the conscience. It is with that stated that you and I thus find a number of things in the New Testament that are quite different than the old. Maybe the conscience and the matters consistent with that ultimately have a large explanation in regard to it. With regard to those 32 cases, I've asked you to note the Greek word that appears. The word is synodesis. Now you might ask, well, what does that word mean? And we would all probably be in place to ask that same question because we're not fluent in Greek. The definition, I've asked you to note what follows it. That word from the original context has to do with that which distinguishes between what is morally good and what thus is bad. That is to say, that distinguishment and the consequences of it are what appears to be referenced in the issues connected to the usage of that word. To say that somewhat differently, and it would seem to me this is a fine definition that you and I could use to help us, always in light of understanding the conscience. The conscience is that part of a person that analyzes that person's thoughts and actions in light of that person's judgment. May I say again, it's that part of a person that analyzes and critiques the person's actions and and thoughts in light of that person's judgment. That puts it pretty well in consistency at least to the text that we're about to see. And so let's close that slide this way. In Romans 2, verse 15, we note one of the first references that you and I shall make. Paul had these words to say. I'll begin reading in verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Isn't it interesting? Here, Paul, as he referred to the conscience of some, in this case Gentiles, he says that conscience either accuses or it excuses. And isn't that the same for you and me? When you and I act in consistency to our judgment, our conscience never bothers us. We lose no sleep. It doesn't bother us to give thought to what we thought or did. But if, on the other hand, our actions are not consistent with that judgment, our conscience will disturb us, bother us. It will critique us in a way that leads to a little bit of challenge or difficulty. We may have restlessness. We may feel tension. We may not be at ease. We've all experienced this to, to one degree or another. As we continue on that journey today, what are some additional things that we might learn about the conscience? Let's start on this next slide, and let's entitle it, The Thought of Nature. I begin that this way. When you and I act in a way that our judgment approves, our conscience, again, offers no challenge, no bother. It does not offer any distress in any way. But that immediately notes this. Let's use Paul as an interesting thought example. Let's use him as a presentation of the Word of God in the following way. Paul could say in Acts 23.1, the text we just noted, he in that day was able to say he had always acted in good conscience. Interesting. He put Christians to death. He imprisoned them in Acts 9. He behaved in a way that brought great... Challenge and, in fact, great persecution to them. And he said, It never bothered my conscience. How do we understand this? Is it not true that that slide tells us? You see, Paul at that time in his life was acting in full consistency to his judgment. He thought Christianity needed to be destroyed, he thought Jesus Christ was the imposter of the ages. He thought the law of Moses was still in force, and anybody, including Christ, that would oppose it, they needed to be corrected. They needed, in fact, to be punished. And therefore, he imprisoned Christians in Acts 9. He had in his possession letters that permitted more of that in Damascus. And he even stated in Acts chapter 26 that he gave his voice against Christians, verses 9 and 10, apparently, that would lead to their death. He had acted in good conscience. You and I today then might learn a great deal from that. My conscience may be such that I could do something terrible in light of God's judgment, but it may not bother me. The reason simply being this, I have never trained my conscience, that is to say, I've never trained my judgment, in such a way that it would be bothered if things otherwise were to take place. That statement I made earlier, let your conscience be your guide, that's not good advice. If your conscience is such that you have trained your judgment poorly, then your conscience will never bother you even when you act in ways you should not. May I say again, if you've never trained your judgment to be guided by a thus saith the Lord and to be guided by that which is morally upright, then even when you'd act in a way that's not good, your conscience won't bother you. It goes back to training. It goes back to instilling in one's training and in one's mentality and in one's methodology that which is honestly and always upright. There's nothing situational about this. Furthermore, on that slide, isn't it powerful to note this? I've asked you to consider about the middle of it, the qualifications of a deacon you and I are so thankful for those men who in fact proceed through the works which the Word of God reveals to them and the elders approve for them. And yet Paul made this statement in 1 Timothy 3. He pointed out in that passage, as you'll notice, that these hold the mystery of the faith in a good conscience. We need men who thus, with absoluteness of trained judgment can then act in a way that's upstanding in every facet connected to that work. That's what's required of a deacon. May I say there are many elements in judgment which certainly would have a great bearing for all of us. Doesn't this impress upon us the absolute need to make sure that our judgment is trained so that that conscience will be the active matter that will bother us when we act as we should not? How well are you and I doing at training our judgment this way? The more the Word of God we have access to, the more times we involve ourselves in it. Worship services and Bible studies and various other godly and good things, those matters that can help train that judgment in such a way that it shall be bothered when I act in consistency that's not right. You'll notice again the example of Paul. There was a man who said he lived in all good conscience, even in the persecution he brought upon Christians. You and I realize a great thing changed when he obeyed the gospel. Now his conscience was being trained, if you please, by way of judgment, along the line of beholding absolutely the factors considering the truth of the gospel. Now that man's life was very different, and yet... He still could rely upon a trained conscience after becoming a Christian because it was now trained by way of the gospel of Christ. Isn't it true, as you close that slide with me, you and I can notice some passages that talk about other kinds of consciences. Could I invite you to notice 1 Corinthians 8, verse number 12. Paul referred to those there who had a weak conscience. I wonder what he meant by that. Weak may I remind you of the context so that we can appreciate the lesson in it for us. He was talking about those who were bothered by meats having been offered to idols, and whether or not it was proper and right for a person to partake of that meat. Paul said there are those whose consciences were weak. That is, their judgment wasn't certain and sure, and therefore they weren't clear as to whether or not Or in other cases, there were those that were bothered by it, even though it should not have bothered them. You and I might encounter people like that today. That is to say, the Word of God doesn't condemn something, but yet in their life, they've come to appreciate that such a thing might well be wrong. We would not want to destroy their faith at that early stage in development, but rather we'd want to instruct, to guide, to teach, to assist, and to help until their greater knowledge came to fruition. Could you and I have a weak conscience about certain things? May I again say how powerful it would be to avail ourselves of greater instruction. Seek out someone like one of our elders who are men sturdy in the faith. Men who by seasoned learning and experience have arrived at a point they can guide our souls to eternal life. We might well need to sit and chat with them. Ask their input on certain subjects so that you and I could live a life better attuned to what it ought to be. That kind of thing, the Word of God encourages. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and following. In addition to that, though, what about the bottom? Not only a weak conscience, what about a defiled conscience? May I point you to a text in Titus 1, verse 15, as well as in Hebrews 10, Verse 22. Both passages make reference to a conscience that's defiled. You and I now appreciate what that might well be. A person, you see, who has not trained their judgment in such a way to recognize that certain things are not right, and God does not permit this, and yet they go ahead and do this, and their conscience does not trouble them as you would think it would. May you and I never allow our conscience to come into a situation like that. May we never allow our judgment to reach the point where certain things don't bother us. As we're about to see in a minute, the Bible also talks about that and how tragic. May we pause at this point to say, the conscience is an incredible blessing from God. God has allowed us to possess and have it, and it's there to disturb us when our actions are not consistent with what they ought to be. But the key is we have to have trained our judgment in such a way that that conscience is disturbed. May we ever be thankful, because the disturbing of that conscience ought to be a sign and a signal, sure indeed, that we need to do something, likely involving repentance and confession, likely involving obedience to the truth, likely involving an immediate about-face, so that we can let that conscience be at ease again. May I say how thankful we ought to be for the conscience. As we've already noted, if we've trained their judgment, it would be a fair thing to say, let your conscience be your guide. But if we ever trained the judgment correctly, that by itself would not be good advice. An additional passage that has much to say about that is this. May I direct you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where the conscience is again mentioned and described in a way that I think ought to capture our attention at least for the next few moments. I'll read the first few verses of that chapter, but they begin like this. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Though many things might be noted, isn't it fascinating that Paul made explicit reference to some whose conscience was seared with a hot iron. Now we've already learned about a defiled conscience and the troubling consideration of it. This goes even a step further. A conscience described as being seared with a hot iron. Think of it this way. You and I know what it's like to brand an animal. In the days of the distant past, that was surely more common than today, but you and I still know quite a bit about it. A particular rancher would use a very hot, Item to in fact brand a letter or a symbol to identify who owned that animal. And you can imagine that as that very hot metal object were pressed against the animal, it would in fact sear the nerves at that location and it would lead to a loss of feeling from that time forward. Those nerves, in essence, had been seared. That can still happen to you and me. Have you ever had your arm or some part of your body sufficiently burned in such a way that there's no longer feeling in that locale? What about a person whose conscience is this way? Maybe they have been so rebellious, they have chosen to live in a certain way, and this mentality has brought such actions and consideration to them that they now are such that their conscience isn't even bothered. They can do this thing, they can act in this way, they can be involved in this thing, and it never even seems to disturb them. May I say that that may be those serial murderers we noted earlier in the lesson. Someone who is so hardened, a way of life so certain, a way of thinking so sure, that even when perhaps approached by others with a thought that this is wrong, it brings no bother to them. I might say, not in examples that extreme, but even in others, you and I must be careful. Didn't the psalmist remind us of this in Psalm chapter 1? That we, by association with certain things in life, can become so comfortable with it, so acknowledging of it, so freely condoning and supportive of it, that even though it's wrong, and at first we knew it was, but over time we warm up to it and it doesn't bother her conscience anymore. Quite likely, we'll go to our grave feeling that way. It'll take a person with a lot of love and a lot of persistence and a lot of perseverance to continue to try to reach us, knowing all the while that it's wrong and hopeful we again will realize it too. But what a magnificent statement on the part of those who would continue those efforts to help us understand But Paul spoke here about those having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You and I have got to be careful to always in tenderness not allow our heart to reach a point in wrong to be seared in that way. For if so, we won't any longer feel that it's wrong and we won't be tempted to appreciate that that's true and we'll certainly not be likely to change. At the top of that slide, I invited you to note that the conscience then monitors our thoughts. Has your conscience ever bothered you about certain things you think about? Maybe you see something on TV, or maybe you hear something on the radio, and your conscience begins to disturb you immediately because of the word that you hear. If that's true, be thankful for the conscience. You've likely trained it in such a way that that word that's being spoken, maybe it's God's name in vain, or maybe it's something else, and you begin to be troubled by the thought of what you once did. If so, may we again be thankful that we have that, and may we continue to train it in such a way that it'll always disturb us when we behave in the way that we should not. As you close that slide with me, I would even point out that that conscience based on text in Romans 13 and 14, also has a bearing or at least something to say about even matters of expediency. We mentioned that a moment ago in connection to the weakness sometimes of conscience. It might be fair to say in light of all of those things that this next slide brings us to think more carefully about that which is right versus that which is wrong. The Word of God tells us that there are certain things that are wrong. It doesn't matter what men think about it. It doesn't matter what men have come to believe about it. That doesn't change in any way what God says. And it will never change what God says. It doesn't matter how many generations may pass. It doesn't matter how many years the earth may yet stand. God's Word will always be the unchanging truth which you and I have. First Peter 1.25 continues to say that God's Word endures forever. And Jesus even at one time said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Though heaven and earth may pass away, God's Word never will. It is with that I might at least offer this thought. When you and I then think about the conscience as we've discussed it today, and we think about judgment as we've learned about it, judgment does not determine what's wrong and right. I could easily train my conscience in such a way that something is wrong, my conscience won't bother me. Therein, I've made a mistake, and I have erred greatly. I have allowed myself to be trained by something other than the Bible. To believe that such and such a thing may not be wrong when in fact it is. That means we need time and again to recognize the greatness, the unsurpassed character of the Word of God. It is that which stands absolute. Isn't it still an amazing thing that Jesus said in John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. The shame shall judge him in the last day. It's fair then to say you and I won't be judged absolutely by our judgment. We'll be judged by the Word of God. Hopefully, we have given great endeavor that our judgment will be consistent with God's book. But when I've erred in that regard, it won't change the fact of the judgment. For that reason, the next thing on the slide is this. Isn't it then our goal? Isn't it then our aspiration to construct and move and motivate our judgment so that it is in every way consistent with the Bible? That God, what, what God says is wrong? I will think that way and what God permits and allows, I will in fact think along those lines as well. But certainly in regard to society, and in regard to the typical human endeavor, you and I know that many things that men like to think is okay, God does not think so. May I invite you to note some of the wording in Galatians chapter 5. In that passage, we notice one of those listings that the Apostle Paul provides to us. And beginning in verse number 19, it reads, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. We'll go on in a moment, but among the first four, you and I notice there are these absolute relations connected to Things that are not just impure, but things that have sexual impurity connected to it. Every one of them. Infidelity in one's marriage. You'll notice that the first one listed, fornication, this general characteristic you see of behaving in sexual ways that are again not approved by God. The next two, uncleanness and lasciviousness. May I suggest to you immodesty falls right in that category. Does your conscience bother you when you don't dress modestly? Every one of us need to ask that. We live in a society where nakedness is paraded openly and where nothing to the contrary is ever expected to be said about it. You and I have got to be careful. May we never, ever leave our house dressed immodestly in such a way that we might lead to lustful thoughts in the, in the mind of anybody else does your conscience bother you I hope it does I hope for all of us it does if it does it we need to do some training quickly because we're going to be judged on the day of judgment by what we choose, chose to use as our dress and the bearing that had on others could well in fact lead us to be condemned let's read on idolatry witchcraft does your conscience bother you when you give absolute allegiance to anybody other than God it's a good question do you think more of something you own do you think more of some other aspect of your life than you do God if so you're an idolater and I am too if I'm guilty of that may our conscience bother us in that case let's read on hatred variance Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Paul didn't finish the list. He said other things like this. Do you and I have a conscience that bothers us if we give attention to these things? if we give some kind of support or condoning character to them. One could easily preach an entire lesson on every one of them. But isn't it fair to say among that list, you and I know that when it comes to murders, First John will later tell us that if I hate my brother, do you hold a grudge against somebody else? If so, I hope that your conscience is going to bother you. I hope you've trained in such a way that'll disturb you and by the same token for me as well. He also mentions in that drunkenness. Do you and I have a strong dislike and distaste for We never ever approve alcoholic beverages for social content. You and I know the anxious societies loved it, and our present-sized society still does. Not a thing has changed. God's people are different. They were then, they must be now. If friends invite you to participate and you do, does your conscience bother you? I hope it does. We're approaching the season of the year when lots of holiday parties are there with various alcoholic beverages available by way of wine and things. May we never partake, may we never participate, and never give our condoning voice to any such thing. We have to train our conscience in such a way that our judgment is in the way that God's Word would hold And let's close that slide this way. I've invited you to notice 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 and also chapter 3 verse 9 where Paul to Timothy encouraged of him to have a pure conscience. Earlier today we talked about weak consciences and defiled consciences and seared consciences. How about a good one? Is your conscience pure? What about mine? Are we living each day under the blessed light of the glorious matter of God's revelation? And as long as we live in consistency with it, with a judgment trained according to it, that kind of conscience would be a wonderful guide for life in every way. The closing slide then today, as you and I think about right and wrong, is to notice that Jesus said in John eight thirty two, 32, "...you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." And as that thought is amplified in other passages, that greatness of our, of our conscience in our discussion today might even lead us to notice in 1 Peter 3.21, the conscience is mentioned in this connection. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. Obeying the gospel is a part of making a good conscience. When you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, your conscience is answering in the right way to what is right and what's good and what's noble and what has eternal blessing and benefit connected to it. Maybe today that someone in this assembly has reached a point in life when our study of the conscience has led you to a number of possibilities. If you're able to say with Paul, you've lived in all good conscience to this day, may you, with a trained conscience and with a trained judgment, be able to live the rest of your days in that same kind of way. If your conscience is bothering you about something, it's time to investigate what that is. Is it due to the fact your judgment hasn't been trained as thoroughly as it should be? If so, would you labor? in a great deal of anticipation, striving to make sure that that judgment is trained so that the conscience will continue to be what God would wish it to be. If you've never obeyed the gospel, it's time for a good answer. We would love to be of help and of assistance and furthermore of of real, genuine encouragement. God wants you to be saved. He sent His Son to die for you. When you and I picture the cross... Jesus hanging on it, blood pouring from His side. It ought to bother our conscience if we're not a faithful Christian. It ought to be something to trouble us to think that there, what He did, and yet I'm behaving like this. I'm living like this. I'm choosing to behave like this. We would love to help you today. As a wayward child of God, if you would wish to come back to your first love, why not confess those errors? Why not repent of them and let us approach God in prayer? Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance and help at this time, we'd love to do that and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.